Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today on the Wings of Alliance for Natural Health USA, we will be returning to New Hampshire to visit my friend and colleague, Dr. Alan Gaby. We will pick up where we left off last time by discussing different aspects of nutritional medicine, including the Myers cocktail use. Welcome back, Dr. Alan Gaby. I have a patient, a longtime patient that had been on high doses of magnesium. She felt like she needed high dose and she would get periodic pushes of magnesium, but she always got muscle cramps. And I think that was her problem. Yeah, very well could have been. I mean, uh, it was kind of what we call empirical evidence. You make a decent guess based on what you know. And since it happened a few times early on and never happened again, when I changed my procedure, I think that's what was going on. And then you took out vitamin B12, I believe. Is that accurate? Well, I didn't necessarily take it out. But what I what I found out is when you give it IV as part of the Myers cocktail, let's say somebody comes in and they're chronically tired and you give them B12 shots in the muscle mm-hmm. and it really brings their energy level back up. Some of them said the B12 in the IV didn't work as well. So uh, although I didn't necessarily take it out, I would sometimes give them a separate intramuscular shot. And what there's two possible things that were going on there. One of them is that maybe vitamin C is somehow inactivating the B12 because there is some experimental evidence suggesting that's occurring. So if you give a cocktail uh, with vitamin C and B12, you might be inactivating it. The other possibility is when you introduce it directly into the bloodstream, uh, it's like you fill up the sink and it runs out really fast. Whereas if you give it in the muscle, it's more of a trickle into the bloodstream and it won't run out as fast. And that's why it might last longer. So I never really figured out what the reason was, but I did see a number of people who the intravenous B12 did not work as well as the intramuscular. See, I think this is really fascinating. Thank you. Well, now, you know, there's some of the oral vitamin C people that claim that their vitamin C is the same as IV. Can, can you address that, how the plasma vitamin C levels differ? I don't know which particular product. I've heard claims made for ester C, I know there's a fat-soluble vitamin C, vitamin C palmitate. That one never made any sense to me because vitamin C in human evolution was designed to work in what we call the aqueous phase, the water-soluble area. So I don't know why you would want to have it going to the fat-soluble areas. That's where vitamin E is doing its job. And I don't know of any evidence that vitamin C works in the same areas that vitamin E does. Uh, It's like oil and water don't mix. So that one uh, doesn't make any sense. Then there's ester C, which they claim is much better absorbed, but I haven't really seen any convincing evidence that that's true. Uh, As far as it being the same as intravenous, I would wholly reject that because you can get dramatic increases in the blood level with intravenous vitamin C, and you can't come close to that with oral vitamin C. You keep upping the dose, and at some point or other, you get diarrhea and you can't take anymore but your blood level doesn't go up. I mean, they, they've done uh, pharmacokinetic studies and you've, you've done some of those. Uh, the blood level can be 10 or 20 or 30 times higher with uh, intravenous vitamin C than it is with the maximum tolerated oral dose. Now, the question is whether having a high blood level is useful. 
some reasons to think it is. One of them is that high concentrations of vitamin C kills viruses. Um, and according to some of your research and Dr. Reardon's research, uh, at high concentrations, it kills cancer cells. At a very high concentration, it destroys histamine. And you know, if you wanna do antihistamine work to help with allergies, I guess there's no better way than to destroy the histamine molecule. And that's what vitamin C does at concentrations that can only be achieved with intravenous therapy. Well, I, I wanna talk a little bit more about magnesium. Uh, and I, I believe when you give it by IV push, you're helping it get into the intracellular space. Is that correct? Well, that's what we think is going on. There was a study done uh, in Italy where they looked at heart patients and uh, I don't know how they did this study, uh, but they were able to do biopsies of the heart muscle, and they were also able to do biopsies of a control group. So they found out that the, uh, the amount of magnesium in the heart muscle was only about one third as high as it was in healthy control people that didn't have heart disease. And the blood levels though, were about the same in the two groups. So what that means is that the ability to extract magnesium out of the blood into the cells. And, and we know that there's about 10 times as much magnesium in the cells as in the bloodstream. So you have to pull it against a concentration gradient. The magnesium is constantly leaking out and the cell membranes are constantly trying to pull it back in. And in fact, two thirds of the energy that we expend every day is based on what they call resting metabolic rate. A lot of that is pulling things back into cells that are leaking out. <laughs> uh, but with an ailing heart muscle, you can't pull it in as well. So there's uh, the only way you can get it into the cells is to raise the blood level high enough that the ratio is only maybe three to one instead of 10 to one. So let's say you triple the blood level. It's a lot easier to get that uh, heart muscle level up to where it needs to be uh, than it is if you have a much lower level. And you cannot achieve those blood levels with oral magnesium, same story. You get diarrhea and your blood level only goes up about 20%. Whereas with intravenous, you can bring it up by about 200%. And that apparently is enough to cause changes. Also with muscle spasm, uh, I don't fully understand the mechanism, but I've seen people with acute muscle spasm or with menstrual cramps and literally within a couple seconds, sometimes you give the IV push and almost immediately it's gone. So uh, I don't think I'm that powerful as a placebo doctor. <laughs> I am, who knows? Um, I tried to have the worst bedside manner that I could just to, um, so I couldn't explain <laughs> things by the placebo effect. And then I was horrified one time when this patient came back and said, I really appreciated your knowledge, but what I appreciated most was that you cared about me. <laughs> I said, oh no, I care about them. It's a placebo effect. <laughs> but now over the years, you know, I tried to present it as we don't know if this is going to help. Maybe it'll do you some good. See what happens very calmly. And I remember this woman with fibromyalgia. We didn't even know if that's what she had. The rheumatologist said it's either fibromyalgia or polymyalgia rheumatica, which was a disease similar to rheumatoid arthritis. So he was the... Uh, the specialist, and he was one of my medical school colleagues, and he used to call me Dr. Ascorbate. He used to make fun of me, <laughs> Mr. Vitamin C. So I really wanted to help this lady because uh, she came from him. But so uh, I said, all right, well, if it's fibromyalgia, this shot might help you. I don't know if it's going to do any good. And sometimes it takes three or four injections 
to do some good. But let's try it and uh, maybe we'll have you come back. She had been in constant pain and stiff as a board for six years. No change. It never got better. It was always the same. Anyway, after this 10 or 15 minute infusion, she gets up off the table and stares at me in total disbelief and said, doctor, my pain is gone. This was the first time in six years. I don't believe that was a placebo effect. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And anyway, we were able to control it for, for the next three years until I moved out of state. We had it totally controlled with periodic injections. Well, fibromyalgia, I'm sure you've had more than just this one case. That, that's another diseased entity that you've treated. Can you talk a little bit more about other fibromyalgia patients? Yeah, well, it's probably a uh, what they call a wastebasket diagnosis because it probably includes a lot of different conditions that come out as the same symptoms. And there are many different causes from a nutritional standpoint. For example, food allergy contributes in some cases. Uh, there's specific reactions in some people. It's a minority, but some people react either to monosodium glutamate or aspartame, the, the NutraSweet. And if, if that's the problem, if you identify that and they stop consuming those, it gets a lot better. A lot of people have what I like to call sub-laboratory hypothyroidism. That's another controversial area. It's my firm belief that a lot of people are walking around with uh, underactive thyroid and it does not show up on the blood test. Their TSH is normal, their T3, T4 is normal, and yet it's not normal for them. And they have classic symptoms of low thyroid. Their physical exam is very consistent with low thyroid. And you put them on a low dose of thyroid hormone and boom, all these symptoms get better. And it's a low dose most of the time. And if I had to look back at the 50 best case reports I've ever had, probably 10 of them would have been thyroid hormone therapy and people with normal blood tests. So anyway, there are some fibromyalgia cases that, uh, that have unrecognized hypothyroidism, and we do low-dose thyroid, we do the food allergy, we do the IVs. After this uh, patient came in that I told you about, uh, I was invited to do a local news show, and uh, I brought this woman on, and she told the <laughs> story, and literally the next morning, we booked 25 new patients with fibromyalgia. So I had some experience. They all wanted to try the IV, and what I found is about half of them did substantially better. The others didn't really get much from it. Uh, and it generally took three or four infusions. So that one case I told you about was an outlier. It mm -hmm. took three or four infusions, occasionally more. And then once they got better, we could. it was once a week, and then we'd reduce the frequency. And uh, then they'd gradually get healthy. And after maybe six months or so uh, on periodic infusions, they wouldn't need it anymore. But everybody's different. And uh, I think that, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a term that encompasses a lot of different conditions and a lot of different causations. What about the chronic fatigue syndromes or the fatigue people? Yeah, well, those are kind of similar, those two conditions. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is, is different from just being tired. They think it's a, a post-viral syndrome, but again, that probably has overlap with a lot of different other problems. There's uh, probably a minority of people that have underactive adrenal glands because uh, the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome are similar to the symptoms of mild Addison's disease, which is adrenal failure. And that would include low blood pressure, intolerance to stress, chronic fatigue, low blood sugar, a tendency to allergies, exercise wipes you out for a day. 
it's really hard to diagnose subtle adrenal failure. Um, there are some blood tests, but they're, uh, they often come out borderline and you're not sure what to do. And the, the endocrinology community doesn't really believe in subtle adrenal failure. Either you've got it really bad or you don't have it at all. Uh, <laughs> that never made any sense to me. But I, I did a bunch of therapeutic trials with licorice tinctures, mm -hmm. uh, an alcohol extract of licorice root. Uh, back before 1920, before they discovered uh, cortisone, the treatment for adrenal failure was licorice root. Because what it does is it prevents the body or slows the body's breaking down of the adrenal hormones. So it's kind of like a hamburger helper for the adrenal glands. And so you give licorice root and the, the few adrenal hormones that you're making end up working a lot better and a lot longer. And that was standard therapy for adrenal failure until they discovered the steroid hormones and then licorice got uh, lost by the wayside. So I would use low dose licorice sometimes and uh, surprisingly good results with it in, in a few cases, maybe a dozen cases over the years. Um, and then, you know, the Myers cocktail, approximately half again, uh, just like with fibromyalgia, see good results after three or four infusions. And then they have to keep coming back most of the time or else they can wean off of it after a while. A little bit of thyroid hormones involved sometimes and food allergy. I mean, it gets kind of repetitious, but uh, you know, these are things that are not being done in conventional medicine. But mainstream medical community would just embrace hidden food allergy and some basic nutritional pharmacology using nutrients in relatively high doses. And I would venture to argue that low-dose thyroid hormone therapy, that's probably 75% of what I did. Mm -hmm. It made people better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How about depression? I know you've had experience with depression. Yeah, there are a lot of different uh, biochemical causes. And there, there's definitely emotional causes too, and they, they have to be dealt with. And things like exercise can be very useful. And getting sunlight, sometimes you stimulate the, the pineal gland through the uh, ultraviolet light, and that makes people feel better. But as far as the biochemistry, a lot of different possibilities, and it requires an evaluation. If somebody has cold hands and feet and dry skin and their Achilles tendon reflexes are slow, then it's to me, it's a thyroid case. Uh, probably 40 or 50% of the people that I saw with ongoing depression uh, had low thyroid. And when we put them on thyroid hormone, the depression often gets a lot better, sometimes goes away completely, have a, some dramatic cases in that. But it's probably less than 50% because I had what you might call a, a selected sample. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Jones down the street gets uh, cured of her depression with thyroid hormone. Next thing you know, everybody she knows is coming in because they got the same symptom pattern. So I think in the, the general world, it's less than 50%. But in my practice, it was very high. And then sometimes it's food allergy. Sometimes it's something simple like too much sugar in the diet. It's a different pattern. The, the depression that you see with too much sugar will fluctuate during the day, whereas the thyroid is less likely to. Every once in a while, you give people B12 shots, and that's dramatically effective. It's only a minority, maybe 10% of people. Uh, so you got to do a lot of guessing. My nutrient pharmacology, my favorite one was a combination of tryptophan and vitamin B3, which is niacinamide. Mm -hmm. And the reason I use tryptophan is because it is converted in the body into serotonin. Mm -hmm. And as you know, 
Serotonin deficiency is one of the causes of depression, and many of the drugs that are used to treat depression raise serotonin levels by different methods than, than giving tryptophan would. <laughs> but niacinamide kind of tweaks the metabolism of tryptophan, and it pushes it towards serotonin instead of towards some other combination. So, so I had some really good results with tryptophan and niacinamide. Uh, just one caveat for anybody who's listening to this, you cannot use this treatment when you're using any antidepressant drugs that raise serotonin levels or else you can get into big trouble. There's something called the serotonin syndrome where you got too much serotonin. It can be uh, life-threatening. So uh, anybody who's treating themselves for depression or for insomnia where we use tryptophan, uh, you gotta get your doctors okay and make sure that there's no possible drug interactions going on. And then of course, now our favorite topic is viral infections. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I bit the bullet. I was afraid of that vaccine, but I looked at safety data for three months and all of my friends got it. Uh, I was concerned because the new MR messenger RNA technology had never been used. And uh, who knows what the long-term consequences are, but at my age, you know, long-term keeps getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> and my risk, even though I'm pretty healthy at 71, uh, my, uh, my age puts me at increased risk. So I finally got the vaccine. The, the second shot knocked me out for a day. I was really tired, but it was fine after that. I've given some talks on what to do for COVID. A lot of this is uh, based on what we do with other viruses because there hasn't been enough research, but we do have some evidence that vitamin D is effective both for preventing and treating COVID. We've got some evidence that zinc is beneficial. My take on that is that if we're going to use zinc, we should do it in the form of lozenges because the lozenges will dissolve the ionized zinc right in the mouth where it is going to come closest to the area where the COVID virus gets into the body. So we know that zinc kills viruses on contact. So rather than swallowing it, having to get it absorbed into your intestine, into the bloodstream, and then back to the nasopharynx area, why don't you just put it right on the nasopharynx by dissolving it in your mouth? Um, so that's theoretical, but it makes sense. Uh, and then the other major one is vitamin C. There was a study that came out of China where they gave moderately high doses of intravenous vitamin C to hospitalized COVID patients. And there was about a 30 or 40% reduction in uh, severe illness and mortality. And uh, the problem was it was not statistically significant. So uh, they concluded that it didn't work. But as I mentioned before, uh, that's not the correct conclusion. The correct conclusion was there was a 30 or 40% reduction in mortality, but we're less than 95% certain that the effect was real. They were scheduled to enroll 120 people, but they're only able to get 56 in there. So the probable reason, if that reduction in mortality held for 120 patients, it probably would have been statistically significant. So my approach right now is make sure you got enough vitamin D. This is a controversial area. I don't think people should be mega dosing on vitamin D prophylactically. Uh, my general limit is 2000 a day for people who are otherwise healthy and do not have malabsorption. I'm concerned that long-term use of much higher doses can cause kidney stones, and based on animal research, it might even cause cardiovascular disease. That's, but that's a whole other topic that would take a half hour to discuss. 
So generally 800 to 2,000 units a day for prevention. And then if somebody catches COVID, I probably would give them more for a week or two. And then as far as zinc, uh, the average American diet does not have enough zinc in it. So at the very minimum, I think people should take a multivitamin that has 10 or 15 milligrams of zinc in it, maybe a little more. You should balance uh, zinc with copper. Uh, Good multis balance them because too much zinc depletes copper and copper deficiency causes a lot of other problems that you don't want. So zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, you don't need a huge amount of vitamin C to have on board. You don't want to be deficient when you catch COVID. So, you know, look, something like 200 milligrams a day is probably enough to prevent deficiency in almost everybody, except maybe smokers or people with chronic illness. But then once you get infected, that's a whole other story. Doctors from the 1970s in Scotland found that the level of vitamin C in the white blood cells drops almost to undetectable levels, to the levels seen in scurvy when you get a cold. So uh, it takes multigram doses to bring it back up to normal. So based on that, I've always used high-dose vitamin C to treat any kind of viral infection. Dr. Robert Cathcart introduced the concept of bowel tolerance, where you take as much as you can throughout the day until you get diarrhea, and then you cut it back. That's, again, something I would recommend medical supervision for. Uh, But according to him, when you get just below that bowel tolerance level, that's when vitamin C really knocks out the viruses. And I've seen that some in my own practice, too. You almost wonder if the long haulers after COVID are similar to the chronic fatigue people and the fibromyalgia people. Yeah, well, it it certainly makes sense. I mean, it's a post-viral syndrome. Something very easy that I would try, and uh, most people can do this. Again, you know, I always like to to do the caveat, don't do something based on a podcast. Talk to your doctor first. (laughs) But um, there were some studies from the 1960s. They had a special form of magnesium and potassium called potassium magnesium aspartate. It's just the aspartic acid salts of potassium and magnesium. And they did all these experiments in people with chronic fatigue, not syndrome, but chronic fatigue. And 85% of them got better when they took about two grams a day of potassium magnesium aspartate. That's two grams of the entire product, including the weight of the aspartate, typically about four capsules a day of what's commercially available. And they did double blind studies. And there was actually a drug sold by Wyeth Laboratories marketed for the treatment of fatigue. It was called Spartase which was just potassium, magnesium, aspartate. And then the Food and Drug Administration changed its rules because of the thalidomide disaster where babies were born uh, without limbs when their mothers took thalidomide during pregnancy. And based on that, they had this new policy. It was the Harris-Kefauver Amendment where they required you to prove effectiveness in addition to proving safety before you could market a drug. I don't know why... Uh, the thalidomide disaster had anything to do with effectiveness. They should have just said, you got to prove safety, but that was a whole other story. Uh, Anyway, so Wyeth Labs said, we're not spending millions and millions of dollars to prove this thing works and then have somebody else come around because it's already a generic product and they they couldn't patent it and they couldn't mark it up. So they just took it off the market. And then about 15, 20 years later, the various vitamin companies came out with potassium, magnesium, aspartate. And one of the things that was, the studies back in the, in the 60s, post-viral fatigue was one of the things that uh, was said to respond. And uh, 
this product was uh, one of the ones that my patients would always refill. We had a little dispensary in the office and people would come back. They didn't want to see me. They just wanted their potassium magnesium aspartate because it controlled their, their fatigue. So that's something that I would urge the doctors to recommend for their patients out there. Give it a try. Give it a few weeks and see if it makes a difference. If not, then you, know, you might want to look into Myers cocktails or adrenal insufficiency or things like that. Yeah, I think there's probably a role for that for sure. You know, there's cardiovascular disease. As you know, the trial to assess chelation therapy, Tony Lamas's trial, I helped him with that in the beginning. I'm no longer involved in it, but they were focusing solely on the EDTA portion of that infusion. And of course, you and I both know it has magnesium in it. It's got B vitamins. It's got vitamins, seven grams of vitamin C. So who knows What's helping for the cardiovascular disease? Yeah, well, that's true. And the other uh, aspect of your study, if I recall correctly, there was a very high potency, what is a 28 component multivitamin and mineral. And among the people who were not taking statin drugs, there was a substantial reduction in mortality, if I recall that correctly. In the people taking statin drugs, it didn't seem to help. Uh, but that's probably because the statin drugs have a similar mechanism of action as some of the vitamins, and they've already gotten the benefit from the statins, and there's no room left for the vitamins and minerals. But among the people who were not taking them, there was a, a marked improvement from vitamins and minerals, forgetting the, the chelation portion of that. And I, I cite that work, so, so thank you for, for doing that work. Thank you for doing a lot of the work you've done, because uh, I know you've had an interest in this field for many years, but one of the points you made is a lot of people do this work in their practices and you never hear about it and then they die. But to your credit, uh, you have published some very important research that has brought some of this controversial stuff uh, supposedly into the mainstream. At least there's no excuse now because it's published. Well, the problem is there's been such a pushback against natural medicine since the COVID infection, since the lockdown. And it's really almost come to the point of censorship, which is concerning to me. What kind of pushback? Just general practice or using it for COVID? Uh, using it for COVID, but then stretching it to involve practice altogether. So there's been a, a huge censorship pushback against natural medicine recently. I'm hoping that this is just a short-term effect and that we'll see that pendulum swing the other way again. Is that the usual uh, actors like Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube, or is it somebody else that's censoring it? It's the Federal Trade Commission. It is uh, government authorities. It's, uh, it's a number of policymakers. They're really opposed to nutritional therapy at this time, which is concerning to me because there's so many wonderful benefits. And as you know, the pharmaceutical industry uh, are huge donors both the Democrats and Republicans. Absolutely. If nutritional therapy were used for all the indications that it could be used for, uh, I would say the uh, revenue to the drug industry would drop in half overnight. So uh, I think some of this is very politically motivated. Uh, of course, you know, the state medical societies have their own agenda. I'm not, I think it's different. You know, you go to medical school and then you do three years at least of specialty training after that. And then somebody comes along and says, all you're doing, is, the stuff you're doing is dangerous and it doesn't work that well. And here we got this other stuff that a health food store owner could tell you to do. People get cognitive dissonance. They don't want to hear that. And it's, it's, not, it's not that simple. But my 
observation over the years, it looks like people have this problem dealing with it just because it threatens their expertise. I know people mm -hmm. wouldn't admit that, but I think there's something like that going on. I think that's absolutely true. The algorithms for practice, and you, this is the way you're supposed to, this is the evidence. And if you don't do it this way, you're a bad doctor. So it's very difficult. Yeah. As doctors, we're, we really do care what our peers think of us. Yeah. Well, you know, they all say, they always say they charge you with deviating from the standard of care. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's a plus and minus deviations, right? You can deviate from the standard of care by practicing superior medicine too. <laughs> but, you know, they don't really have that concept. So uh, anyway, things are changing. More and more doctors are getting into what they're calling integrative medicine now. The naturopathic community is growing. A lot of chiropractors are doing it. There's uh, master's degrees in nutrition that uh, are using my textbook, actually. There's uh -huh. about six or seven master's programs in the United States. And the textbook talks about the therapeutic use of diets and nutritional supplements. And that's not something you learn in dietetics school. Dietitians have to take these other courses if they want to start doing it. But like I said, it is growing because the evidence is more and more and it's not going to be suppressed forever. I think during our lifetime, it'll become mainstream, at least I hope. I hope you're correct. I have to ask you, are you still playing your music? Well, um, I wrote a bunch of songs in the 1970s about the tragedy and comedy of going <laughs> through medical school and the tragedy and comedy of going through life. And I put out an album. I recorded them all in 1993. And the album is called About Doctors and Folks. And uh, a year ago, I put it on Spotify. So anybody oh, you did. To listen to it, uh, just type in Alan Gaby. You got to spell it right. Alan G-A-B-Y. And uh, it'll come up, the album about doctors and folks. And it's, uh, it's kind of tongue in cheek. It talks about, uh, in a comedic way, how horrible medical school is. And then there's some, some other songs about life that uh, some of them are funny and some of them are serious. Um, and my singing isn't terrific, but uh, the album's not too bad. <laughs> oh, it was so, I remember you played, I think it must have been an ACAM meeting, although I'm not sure, you played for us, and it was so fun. It was really good. <laughs> yeah, so those are the songs you probably heard, and they're on Spotify now. Well, good for you. Well, thank you so much for jumping on board with me and and really entertaining me. That's what it's all about. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure and it's great to see you again. And thank you for all the work you've done. A special thank you to Dr. Alan Gaby. I'm sure you've enjoyed this entertaining and enlightening discussion. And a special shout out to Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms. Go to anh-usa.org and become a member today.